This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. So this is Paul Verschur with Maria Kruzma, one of the speakers in our BCBT summer school. And um, you focus very much in your talk about building an artificial fish. Right, that yes. was very much the topic, uh, the topic of your of your talk and of a lot of your research. Right? Is fish. Yes. So, um, and you you started out with a, with a very fundamental question, like what when we talk about biomimetics, what do we really copy? Right. That was your fundamental question you started right. out with. So so tell me tell me what 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 are we essentially copying in biomimetics, and are we really copying? Um. I think we're copying, but we really don't always think of whether we are copying the wrong uh, or right things. Mm-hmm. There is an um, approach in biomimetics that you can call the naive biomimetics approach. You just copy everything. Like first, uh, propellers had feathers because people thought the feathers are very important things. You know, on very every flying object you have feathers, so you wanted your propellers, you have feathers too. But in the end, they understood that the helicopters are hovering very well without feathers. From the point of view of aerodynamics, this doesn't really matter in this case. Mm-hmm. And I think if we look back to our own research now, 10 years ago, well, after 10 years, the projects that we are doing right now could look equally funny mm-hmm. because all of these wrong ways and wrong approaches we are taking and copying irrelevant things like mm-hmm. uh, first cars in history, they had a place in the front of the car for a horse. Mm-hmm. And it was there for a long time because cars involved from the horse carriage before people understood that these places for a horse but they are completely unnecessary and redesigned the cars. Mm-hmm. And I suppose we do the same things. And if we ask a question like how, what should we copy or what is relevant, then uh, we maybe can avoid taking this wrong directions once in a while. Mm-hmm. So um so but what if you now look at the fish case as as a specific target of your research right so what what makes fish so interesting well naive biomimetic approach says you fish are excellent swimmers mm-hmm. nothing swims as well as fish mm-hmm. so uh, from this point of view it makes sense to copy fish mm-hmm. see how it works and and see if it uh how does it compare to a propelled vehicle? Mm-hmm. But where you come to difficulties, I'm a little critical now about biomimetic approaches, actually, and my own research too. Mm-hmm. I think that propellers are wonderful inventions. You see, nature has been working on uh, methods to travel underwater for millions and billions of years. It never, she never came out up with a propeller. But it's a wonderful, simple device and very powerful. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but definitely, if you want, if you look at the technology of propellers, what happens there uh, for um, for the last, I don't know, tens of years, all the development is already very incremental. And if you want to make a breakthrough, you come up with something completely different. Then you could look at undulating bodies, like fish do, like fish have to to uh, try to design something different. Mm-hmm. But now, if you talk about propellers, you might find them fantastic. But in some sense, 
fish seem to be more efficient swimmers than so you're more efficient they're more energy efficient that's mm-hmm. one way why you want to uh, look at fish mm-hmm. and um, another thing is they're quiet they don't leave the wake behind them it means actually if you look at the wake behind the propeller this is all energy got wasted mm-hmm. in right. water yeah, so in that sense I, I could argue that that you, the very positive statement you made earlier about propellers is maybe a little bit biased, but that that's the current state of the art. It's just the best we can do. It's the best we can do, but I think we're doing very well. We're mm-hmm. we're researching on the fish robots, but they're not very very efficient at the moment. So really, do you understand what is the mechanism? Mm-hmm. Uh, what makes her so efficient? Mm-hmm. We just we still don't understand how we should mimic this technology okay one important aspect is um, uh, said fish have a distribu- distributed action they have hundreds and hundreds of muscle fiber fibers all over the body and if you look at the current technology we have in hand what is a reli- reliable technology is really still the devo- te- technology of rotating motors mm-hmm. okay we have other fancy things that i also used to work with like electric electroactive polymers and artificial muscles and nitinol or all these contracting actuators but but they have their own issues this mm-hmm. is not a mature technology mm-hmm. and uh, uh now, if you want to use a mature technology we have, which is DC motors, mm-hmm. and make a distributed actuation system, you end up with something very, very big and clumsy in mm-hmm. the end. You end up with big and clumsy, it becomes energy inefficient, it mm-hmm. becomes hard to control, and really, really big. You don't make little, agile, simple devices outside. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so, okay, so, so, so we agree that in terms of our best solution to the problem fish are still doing better okay so swimming fish, swimming fish do great. better yeah? fish do better so but then what i would like to know um what makes them better okay what what are the tricks what are these principles that as a biomimetic engineer you might want to extract from fish to build better fish-like machines right so what makes fish better swimmers but every machine works by transmitting energy from their own body to the surrounding motor, water by transmitting the momentum of energy, they push themselves forward and move the water. The way propellers do it is by rotating the plates. So do, the way fish do is by undulating their bodies and creating a traveling wave, and then it passes the momentum mm-hmm. to water. And uh, how do they do it so efficiently? Uh, we didn't know exactly. So there are, again, are many aspects of it. One is the uh, body embodiment itself. Uh, now, when it comes to physics of um, compliant bodies and water interaction, is a terribly, terribly difficult field to go into uh, to understand how compliant bodies and water interact with each other. It's there is no mathematician who could sit down and write up the equations and say that this is optimal solution to the problem. Mm-hmm. Nobody can do that. Mm-hmm. So what we have is more like an experimental approach. We try to optimize surface area or the fins, or we try to optimize the length of the body or whatever comes to your mind, mm-hmm. and see that if we get more efficiency out of the right. fish. But now, what is one thing that's interesting about fish is that they actually have developed a pretty advanced sensing system to to be able to really measure in detail the properties of the medium around them 
right? So these are these lateral line sensors. Lateral line sensor is a very specific sensor. In a, in a way, it's very general because it's common for all fish. Mm-hmm. All fish uh, have, la- have have lateral line. But on the other hand, it's only common for those creatures who live underwater. Uh, nobody walking on the ground or uh, flying in the air doesn't have a lateral line. Mm-hmm. And um, one problem with mimicking lateral line sensing is that it is not clear understanding uh, among biologists either how this marvelous sensing organ actually works. Mm-hmm. In which cases is it active and in which cases it's passive, mm-hmm. uh, in which, which behaviors, and how this information is processed. Mm-hmm in the body, in the brain of the fish. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you want to do a biomimetic approach of a lateral line, it's like shooting in a dark room. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> but here comes another aspect of biomimetics, which I would call inverse biomimetics. Mm-hmm. You know, we think of biomimetics that we go from science to technology. Scientists, scientists uh, find out something, they discover things. Uh, investigate things that exist there already, they discover, they make a discovery, and then they pass over to us engineers. And the engineers say, uh-huh, here is a great phenomenon, how do I get some use out of it? And then they de- develop the technologies. So what biomimetics actually does is it, it turns discoveries into inventions. Mm-hmm. But if you did inverse biomimetics, you could do the other way around. Mm-hmm. You turn inventions into discoveries. Mm-hmm. And this is a little bit what we're doing with our fish lateral line experiments in uh, Philosophy Project. It's very hard for a biologist to investigate the lateral line. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of work and I have a very deep respect to biologists who are working with it because it takes lots of lots of lots of patience. Mm-hmm. For example, if you want to understand what is the role of a certain uh, modularity of lateral line sensing, either the sense pleasure or the sense flow in certain behaviors, it's very hard or even po- impossible to knock out some parts of the systems, either pharmaceutically or surgically, or do mm-hmm. these experiments. And sometimes the left only behavioral tools, mm-hmm. which is very, very hard work for mm-hmm. people. And here you could take a, a robot or a technology as a method for biologists. Mm-hmm. Says that right. I have now my artificial robot here, artificial fish, and it has an artificial lateral line. What if I knock out the left part of the artificial lateral line and see what happens? Mm-hmm. Does right. it give you anything as a biologist to think about? Mm-hmm. And if you do the inverse biomimetics in the right way, you could have a very big impact to what biologists can find out. Right. And it also means that you might have what you want to shoot for then is is a continuous interaction between, let's say, hypotheses generated from the scientific domain, validated in the engineering, mm-hmm. with predictions going back into the science. Exactly. Right? This is really to the role the the Exactly. That's the role the biomedics yes. can play here, yeah. which we clearly see also in your project. Yes. Right? But now... To look at the lateral line, essentially these are, it's a strip of sort of hairs that, that runs along, or hair-like elements that runs along the side of the fish's body. Um, and it also has similar sensors on its head or on other parts of the body. And it's used to, to sense exactly what? What's the lateral line exactly sensing? Lateral line has two modalities. Actually, there are two ways of measuring flows. 
Mm-hmm. One is that you can measure flow velocity, and another thing you can measure pressure. In very few uh, few conditions, when you have a laminar flow, they are very easily related to each other by Bernoulli's law, when they are inversely proportional. But otherwise, it's quite. A, if you are in a difficult hydrodynamic environment, then how does this uh, different modality? Do these different modalities add up to each other is also a very complicated interplay. But FISH has, uh, is equipped with both of the systems. They have canal lateral lines and can measure the pressure difference. And it has a surface lateral line, uh, what biologists call a neuromast, mm-hmm. that uh, measure uh, the flow. So these are just simply like uh, little cantilevers, little beams that bend in a flow. Mm-hmm. And depending on the angle of bending, you can figure out how strong is the flow. Mm-hmm. So what happens next is very complicated and nobody exactly knows what happens because some of the processing, signal processing of the signals is done in a, so to speak, hardware already of the fish. Mm-hmm. Because uh, here cells are of a different stiffness and different height, and they probably also uh, work as some sort of fig- filters, mm-hmm. low-pass, high-pass filters. And some of the, if you think of how something like a fish, who is a rather unsophisticated, uneducated creature, could do such a sophisticated signal processing. Mm-hmm. So one answer to that is that it probably does it already in embodiment. The sensors do some of the filtering and um, cleaning up the crap from all mm-hmm. the noise from right. what they're for getting mm-hmm. in. And then it goes to brain. Mm-hmm. And then the fish makes a decision based on what it feels. Yeah, but, so, but the decision the decision this, this brain is going to make isn't this domain of what's called real taxes, right? It's like the, the, the response to a, a current, right? That's one thing that fish do, is that they respond to a stimulus, which is a current mm-hmm. or flow. Uh, the simplest form of real taxes is when a fish orient its, orients their nose against the flow. There are several reasons of doing that. One reason is that if you're a migrating fish, you have to go upstream to find your spawning uh, spawning place mm-hmm. then you have to know the direction of upstream <laughs> mm-hmm. and this is a classical example of a real taxis behavior but you could also just uh, try to be in sweet spots on a flow where you get a lot of odors and a lot of food mm-hmm. flowing by and then you just right. sit there and open your mouth and mm-hmm. open hoping for the fresh plankton of the day exactly <laughs> no but so what is the interesting about that right is that these these fish with with a lateral line sensor can also live in a world where where you have these dynamic objects which are essentially the 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 properties of the flow right where you can say okay here i have a flow profile Mm. that i like but here it's more like a flow obstacle that i should avoid Mm -hmm. so so the it's as if as if you walk through a mist right where you have high density and low density spots Mm -hmm. in in a Mm -hmm. field with filled with mist to which you would navigate and you would go for the open mm. spots because that's your, that's where you would have more visibility. It looks a bit as if they have a very pretty complex representation of the dynamics of the medium that they're in. It's an interesting question. I don't know how about of uh, how much spatial memory do fish have, but if you think of salmon, for example, mm-hmm. that does order rear taxis. Uh, and combining it with the information from from the flow, and it finds its home river where it was born once, and then goes upstream and migrates. So maybe 
It it definitely fuses the souls with other kind of information. They use information from the magnetic field and linear and all mm-hmm. sort of different. So, I think all the all all fish like other animals are patient optimizers. Mm-hmm. They just trying to find um, a likelihood, maximal likelihood from all the information they get in. Mm-hmm. But if you're, I don't know what's going on in fish's brain, but if you take it from an um, information theoretic point of view and you look at these flow maps that fish possibly could have, then you can think of that fish could build up a really complicated map of uh, discriminate hydrodynamic events. Mm-hmm. Tells right. that there is a certain hydrodynamic event in one spot and certain in the other. Mm-hmm. And then you can think that it maybe adds up as kind of a robot environmental map, mm-hmm. either topological map or grid-based exactly. map or something. Right. You don't know what happens in its brain, but this is something very new that roboticists don't do. Mm-hmm. They don't build maps based on flow information, but Mm-hmm. Fish probably have this somehow incorporated into mm-hmm. their environmental mapping. Right. Yeah. Now th- that's very exciting. But then, um, in some sense, we cannot ig- ignore the, this whole issue that what starts to become important now is also your relative size uh, in terms of the medium you're in. Right. Like for instance, if you're a whale, even though they're not fish, but let's say you have that scale, or let's say you're a whale shark, mm-hmm. so you're still a fish, but you're very big. Um, then in some sense, a lot of this turbulent stuff you just don't care about, right? Because you will mm-hmm. overcome a lot of this. I think if sharks you... care a lot. Mm-hmm. It has been shown that shark skin is actually a sensing organ. And what what sharks probably do is what is called eddy odoria taxis, that they get in the uh, information of the smell and combine it with what they feel with a rather a line about the local flow. And then they make decisions where to go based on this information. For and if you if you think of if mm. you think of sharks ability to lock uh, to, to uh, a localized plot, mm-hmm. even few drops of plot far, far away. Right. They must have this ability yeah, very fastly see, to. So what it means, it's complete. It doesn't. It's not then relevant for navigation itself. Mm-hmm. But what what it's used for is for source localization. Right? Uh, we don't know. We don't know whether it's also relevant for navigation itself mm. or just source localization. But well, it's kind of. Um, I don't know whether it's a relevant question. Why do you have to navigate anyway in order to get somewhere, right? Well, so look, you if do you're social guppy, let's say if you're a really small fish, uh-huh. right, then in some sense you want to be really clear uh, or you want to understand where the turbulence is because you have to overcome, you have to generate a certain propulsive force to overcome the counter force you receive from your environment. Uh-huh. So, so there the scaling of mm. yourself to the medium, also expressed in this Reynolds number, mm. will become pretty important. Well, if you mm. are a whale shark, that's something you don't have to worry about too much. Yeah, but this is what is called a negative reotaxis. So instead of going into the flow, you try to keep away from the stream because mm-hmm. you're such a small fish, you're afraid of, you're afraid of being uh, blown away with the, with the stream. So mm-hmm. it's equally important whether you have a big Reynolds number or a small Reynolds number. Probably your equipment is different and your uh, mechanism are a little different. Okay, so so yeah, so that that's a bit the question I want to get to. That mm-hmm. so we, we are scaling this relationship, or we quantify this relationship with the so-called Reynolds number, right? It tells you something about this relation between, let's say, on the one of the forces that the medium exposes you to, mm-hmm. and those that you can generate yourself, right? And um, so then the question is, if I'm if I'm operating at let's say low Reynolds numbers, 
are my principles of operation qualitatively different as when I'm operating on high Reynolds number and numbers? And where is the transition exactly? So can you say something about that? Is that understood in some way? No, I don't think if I ask the same thing from biologists, there is uh, no kind of... Um firm answers that, yeah, we established that already. Mm-hmm. Uh, both small and uh, big fish has have lateral line. So mm-hmm. it must mean it's it's somehow important. If, mm-hmm. if you're living in this medium, you have to sense this medium. But nobody seems to be um, investigating what is the correlation between the environment you're living in and the topology of your lateral line, for example. Mm-hmm. While some of the fish have more lateral line sensor in the head and none of them in the body, and some fish have lots of sensors mm. in the rear part of their body, and does it depend on environment or the way they're feeding or lifestyle in mm-hmm. other aspects of the lifestyle? Right. Nobody has a beautiful, simple law mm-hmm. to answer for that. That's interesting. So, because it, what is interesting there uh, is that, and it goes a bit back to this earlier point, that although first you think, okay, fish swim, they swim in a turbulent medium, they have to sense this medium to optimize swimming, so they need lateral line. But then actually, when you push it further, you see that lateral line might actually be used for something completely different. And that swimming comes almost for free for fish, because as you also mentioned in your talk, that, that fish show a lower metabolic rate in turbulent environments as opposed to non-turbulent environments, which seems a very surprising result, isn't in a it? periodic turbulent environment. Okay, so explain. Uh, periodic turbulence is on moderate Reynolds numbers when you have like beautiful uh, regular vortices. Mm-hmm. Normally they appear behind some object. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's some evidence, biologi- biologists suggesting that fish like to be in environments like that. Mm-hmm. And also if you catch a fish from an environment like that it's and investigates its m- metabolic rate, it appears that fish are less tired. Mm-hmm. And there is a very interesting um, experiment done in uh, George Lauder's lab in Harvard uh, with Jimmy Liao and uh, his colleagues uh, with a dead fish swimming upstream. Uh, so definitely their lateral line is not concerned at all because you're dead. Exactly. You can't sense anything. Mm-hmm. Even more, you can't even actuate yourself. Okay. So the only thing you're left with is your body embodiment, mm-hmm. which somehow has to create um, uh, propulsion. Mm-hmm. And the mechanism you can speculate uh, behind it is, is the same mechanism that pushes the sail forward. Mm-hmm. Just by... Um, taking advantage of the pressure differences in mm-hmm. the vorticity. Mm-hmm. And what is the role of Radar Ryan uh, for, uh, in finding so sweet environments they like to be in is not known. Right. If you ask biologists, they can't say you as a karma gating. This is a phenomenon when you, when you stay in regular turbulence and you flap your tail periodically with the mm-hmm. same frequency of vortex shedding whether this is a passive or an active behavior. Mm-hmm. So we don't know. But now this result of the, the, the dead fish uh, swimming upstream was published a while back, no? It, it's not very recent. No, it's not very recent. I think, uh, I'm not sure, but I think it's 2004 or okay. something. So are you aware of anyone being able to replicate that? Is there... I I have no idea anybody has replicated that so mm-hmm. far. I haven't heard of anybody uh, repeating this experiment. And I've had plans to repeat them with uh, robotic fish in mm-hmm. my lab- laboratory, but I haven't got so far yet. 
Mm-hmm. But what we are speculating by um, uh, uh, by looking at the results of our own research could be that what really matters is um, very delicate interplay between the turbulence and the properties of the body. Right. So what really matters probably is that if you happen to be of the right size with the right floppiness perhaps and in the right spot in order to create this phenomenon, just you don't see very often dead fish swimming and this could be the reason why. Right, yes, exactly. Yeah. No, but what, what is very powerful about this is that you, you, you really see that the morphology itself is mm-hmm. actually solving a heart problem mm-hmm. that we intuitively might have thought of as requiring a brain. Mm-hmm. So um, that means that the, the passive dynamics of the body is structured in a way that it can actually propel itself. Mm-hmm. In, in, given that the medium mm-hmm. has certain properties. The same phenomenon has been demonstrated uh, on the ground with passive walkers. Mm-hmm. You put a robot that doesn't have any sensing or has any actuation, you put it on a ramp and it just keeps walking down. Right. But it's the same thing, sir, that you have to have the right slope of the ramp mm-hmm. in order to make it occur. How often uh, in, in, in your life are you walking down the slope and only down the slope? So probably because you're not doing that and normally the ground is rough, so this is why you're also developed actuation and sensing. Mm-hmm. And I think the same holds for fish. But if you think of the ramp... What is different in when you're fluid is that you're in a microgravity environment or zero gravity environment compared to what you what you're feeling in a crown. What you're feeling on a crown is a gravity, mm-hmm. and in water you almost don't sense gravity at all, and it kind of suggests your embodiment has to also be very different. Mm-hmm. And now, and you have a solid ground behind you. You're walking. You're a passive walker, but I think when you're interacting with the flow. The flow is compliant. So I think it's more like uh, compares to walking on a trampoline <laughs> rather than <laughs> right. rather than the longest street. Yes. And this is why I think also it's harder to demonstrate underwater. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But now, so, so okay, now, now what we have, what you're by, what also what we see now in these biomimetic principles of, of control, the body gives you already a lot of functionality. Some people would call this a morphological computation, although I find this it's a bit of a difficult concept. There's also right? a concept from embodied intelligence, right, which exactly. actually is a little wider, but says mm. the same, that you outsource mm-hmm. some of the control burden to your embodiment without exactly. being conscious about this. Right. So, but now I'm a fish, I'm alive, I have a brain, so I still want to control my swimming, right? I cannot just flop around in some vortex and see where I'm ending up. I want to you know, turn left, right, go up or down, catch prey, what have you. So, so I'm going to control that. So let's first look at propulsion. So what do we know really about, let's say, how I control my swim speed? That's a very interesting uh, research which is done uh, by John Long in Wasser College some years ago. And he has a very uh, elegant experiments demonstrating uh, what are the... Uh, first-order control parameters of the fish. So what fish seems to control is a tailbeat frequency and stiffness and amplitude. Mm -hmm. And if you look further into that, swimming speed is a second-order control parameter. You control your swimming speed by controlling your stiffness, by controlling your tailbeat frequency, for example. Mm -hmm. And what biologists have also demonstrated, there is a very beautiful and simple control law, which says that 
uh, swimming speed and tailbreak frequency are linearly uh, uh, related to each other. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, uh, different from a tailbreak amplitude, which is a completely independent variable. But this seems strange. I mean, you would expect they have a bigger fin, right, a bigger surface, uh, a tail fin, then I would need less beats to, to generate the same propulsion. No? But now you seem to say it was independent of the size, but dependent on the frequency. It depends on the frequency linearly. What okay. it does with the amplitude is not known. It's it's how does amplitude contribute. Uh-huh. So it do vary their amplitude. Mm-hmm. But there is not like a beautiful, simple relationship between how they control their amplitude and how mm-hmm. they uh, propel themselves forward. Okay. So what do we know there in terms of fish behavior? Do they con- in some continuous fashion control their beat frequency or do they have preferred frequencies at which they beat their their tail? Uh, you always have a pre- preferred frequency and the frequency is a resonance frequency. Mm-hmm. Because on resonance frequency you're beating your tail with a maximal amplitude. Mm. And what fish could do in order to control their amplitude then is not directly necessarily to change the amplitude, but change the stiffness. Exactly. If you if you change the stiffness, you get a different resonance frequency, mm-hmm. and by having different resonance frequency, you get different amplitude. So when you want to have high frequencies, you're probably making yourself stiffer, mm-hmm. and having a stiffer body gives you a higher amplitude and higher frequencies. Right. This seems to be what fish are doing. Mm-hmm. Another interesting thing is that if fish are uh, steadily swimming, and the steadily swimming is caused, co- uh, called the cruising speed of a fish, which is about one or two body lengths per second. So mm-hmm. if you're a fish and you're you're swimming at a cruising speed, you can on, go on forever and forever and mm-hmm. forever. You even don't get tired almost. And it's it's shown that fish use only very few muscles to do that. Most of its body is completely uh, relaxed, and it, it uses few of the anterior muscles. Mm-hmm to create motion and pass the traveling wave along the completely or almost completely passive tail. So this is why they don't get tired. Mm-hmm. They're exactly. so good energy optimizers. Uh, that, that's it's impressive. something like when you go and you you run a marathon, mm-hmm. you don't keep your legs stiff. You're very relaxed, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Just because you want to conserve energy to have all this 42 kilometers going. But if you're a sprinter, mm-hmm. you do exactly the opposite. Not exactly the opposite, you still, uh, but but you, you use much more muscles in order to go very fast in a long period of time. Right, exactly. And fish do the same mm-hmm. thing. They use their other muscles, white muscles, mm-hmm. when they have to do something very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, Saves their lives, get right. a prey. Yeah. So this is for rapid turns, bursts, mm-hmm. acceleration, decelerations. Mm-hmm. And they use it very seldom. Mm-hmm. Only when they have to, because like a sprinter, you get right. terribly tired of it. Sure. But now, so I'm a fish, I'm flapping my, my tail fin, but I probably have some oscillator sitting in my brain somewhere that's driving this, right? And But now th- this oscillator is driving my the tail, fl- the, the, the tail, but I'm, v- I'm, varying, I'm varying the stiffness of my body in the meantime as well, right? So... Um, so then, then the question becomes, um, should I control this oscillator that drives? How do I control the, the fin, the tail fin oscillator relative to the stiffness control I'm, I'm performing? What's the scaling there? 
Yeah, I can answer you. I have no idea. Okay, but you, but you agree, no? It would be a pretty important relationship absolutely. to manage. To manage. Absolutely. Otherwise, you, absolutely. Okay, because you could basically just break your muscles or, or the motor plant in any other way. Yes? Absolutely, okay. but I have no idea why they choose to control one parameter or the other. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's hard to ask fish, right? <laughs> we can try exactly. Okay, so so now we we know that that that, that how we're how we're swimming. Um, so we, we flap our tail at certain frequencies. We manage we control stiffness. Um, but then how does the sensing feed into that, right? So in some sense, I could then argue, well, I don't need much sensing to achieve that, right? Well, if you if you have to control your swimming speed, mm -hmm. so um, you probably, what you do is like when you walk, you're walking with respect to some global reference frame. So from this point of view, I don't know whether flow sensing is is significant here or not because mm -hmm. flow is also flowing right sure so try to swim in a river and understand where you end up mm -hmm. I, I don't know whether you ever um, got out swimming from a boat and you're there in a flow mm -hmm. and the boat is here and you're swimming and you kind of feel you're staying still or you're mm -hmm. swimming in one direction and you, then you turn around and say, oh where is the boat mm -hmm. oh it's far far away somewhere already and you couldn't understand you're being carried away with the flow Right. And probably fish have the same problem. I think they have the same problem. Mm -hmm. Yes. What you, what you um, feel in swimming, you can just extrapolate from when you're swimming. Mm -hmm. You're feeling track. Mm -hmm. But the funny thing with a track is that, I don't know whether you ever thought about it, but we humans don't have a track sensor. True. Right? Mm -hmm. And we don't have a speed sensor. Mm-hmm. So if you're sitting in a car and you're driving very, very fast, way too fast on mm -hmm. a very good road, which you sometimes do when you have a very good car, mm -hmm. uh, you're not feeling anything. You're not feeling the speed. Mm -hmm. You could feel, if you close your eyes, you could feel that you're almost still. Mm -hmm. But what you're feeling is acceleration. Right. Try to uh, drive a car on a pumpy road, on a bad road, and you're starting mm -hmm. to pump and your inner ear is going to react and you're feeling a speed suddenly. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, why do you know that you're going fast if you're going yourself, not by the car? Is that you're getting tired? Mm -hmm. And this is probably what fish is feeling when it swims against the stream, either slowly or, or fast, mm -hmm. that it's getting tired. And it seems that the cruising speed of one, two body lengths is something that makes them least tired. This right. is why they choose this sort of uh, mm -hmm. speed. But could you imagine that the fish also adjusts its body stiffness relative to the turbulence it's in? Absolutely, I think so. Uh -huh. Yeah. Right. Because that, that would also conserve a lot of energy, right? Absolutely. To be more compliant with respect yeah. to the medium. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the other thing that, that, that was interesting in, in your in your data analysis is that you show that that in these relationships between, uh, for instance, speed and tail and tail fin beats, that that relationship is essentially linear. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's a coincidence? Is that just by accident, or is there is there some biomimetic trick um, behind this? I don't know. I'm almost fascinated about that. You know, there are thirty thousand species of fish in the world, and as far as I know, people haven't found a contraexample. Mm -hmm. Why this law doesn't tell. So it's it's hard to believe for me because I've always thought that such a general law only holds in physics. 
because physics is physics like mm-hmm. it, it's imag- um, it's unconscious world and it can't change in mm-hmm. certain ways but biology is normally it's like uh, you know biology is always imprecise and it's slippery and stinky right. and it can't be that beautiful mm-hmm. exactly but actually there are also other laws in biology and more or less this all statistical laws actually in physics you're precise laws in biology you have statistical laws but mm-hmm. with within the reasonable um, statistical uh, uh, interval these laws all hold and mm-hmm. why is this like this i don't know but i'm very happy for that because mm-hmm. if i'm a control engineer as you know there is nothing better for a control engineer than a linear control law <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly yeah although uh, maybe the, the the precision you might find in physics is a bit overrated right if you go to oh yeah yeah so if you go yeah. down to let's say the quantum yeah, so level <laughs> then suddenly things become all probabilistic as well absolutely right? you have so, measurement errors and all yes. this sort of things so um but now uh, so so now we, we've understood a lot about fish swimming and subsequently you want to build your robot to swim so how is that translation step? How do you do that? How do we go from this now, our understanding of fish swimming, to actually a, a fish robot in a tank swimming? Mm-hmm. Uh, we made many observations and tests from biology. For As you pointed out now, the recent, most recent one is a linear control law, which will show that also uh, works for the fish. So we get a beautiful, easy way to control our fish swimming speed. Another thing that we get from biology is the knowledge that uh, if you uh, swim on cruising speeds, you only use the anterior muscles of your body. What does it mean? It means that the rest of your body is just a passive carrier of the traveling wave that passes energy mm-hmm. onto the water. And why it's very important from a technological point of view, as we started our discussion with uh, distributed actuation, uh, which is very hard to copy, with the current technology we have, mm-hmm. because we have rotating motors that are very big and clumsy. And what does it mean is that I can do a fish that has a single point of actuation only. Mm-hmm. And this gives me a very reductionist approach. So now, of course, everything depends what my, on uh, what my fi- fitness function is. If I don't build a robot that has to fight for its survival, then I'm very happy with a single-point actuation. But if I want to do a robot that can turn around rapidly, that some researchers also in robotics investigating, that probably this approach doesn't hold. Mm-hmm. It has its limits. But in this case, I'm very happy that I, from biologists, I der- derived a very reductionist approach that makes me able to develop simple robots. Simple means normally reliable and cheap. Mm-hmm. And these are two things that people appreciate right. in engineering. Yes. But now tell me how you practically build this robot. What's the material you use for these uh, fish, the robot fish? Uh, we use silicons. We mm-hmm. use all sorts of silicons because uh, we have a technology how we can vary the stiffness. Okay. And we can manufacture uh, tails or whatever body parts you need mm-hmm. <laughs> with whatever elasticity and viscoelasticity you desire. Okay. And uh, yeah, so by that we can also uh, find the right uh, relationship between the stiffness of the materials and the actuation mm-hmm. momentum that we mm-hmm. apply to the material. And then the actuation, how is that done? 
Oh, it's done with a simple servomotor. Mm-hmm. As I said, there is fancier def- technologies, of course, with electroactive polymers, sure. artificial muscles and yeah. everything. But if you wanted to do something cheap and reliable that people would buy in the end, mm-hmm. so maybe it's uh, a right thing to do is sure. to go for the conventional mm-hmm. technology first. Yeah, so so you, you have, uh, have a name for this design methodology you pursued and, and you called it KISS. Well, KISS is a very uh, general, a well-known design met- methodology in all engineering, which means keep it stupid, simple, stupid. Mm-hmm. And I think most of people who come from engineering know what KISS means, especially software developments, where your software development mm-hmm. <laughs> developers, the code gets out of your hands so fast that if you're not taking a KISS approach, you're doomed very soon. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we take this approach because um, I believe that uh, from all the things you can copy from biology, you have to copy only the most important, most relevant things mm-hmm. to get something that people can use later on, and which is easy to make, simple, reliable and mm-hmm. cheap. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, KISS methodology, I think, is also relevant in science. Because if you want to keep simple, stupid, uh, things stupid, uh, things simple, sorry, mm-hmm. if you want to keep uh, things simple, uh, it helps you this kind of approach, helps you to understand what is importance of one or the other factor mm-hmm. in the phenomenon that you are investigating. For example, you take off the lateral line sensing and you ask, what happens if I take it off? I make my system very simple. I take all sensors off. What can I still do with a system without any sensors at all? What can mm-hmm. I do with a dead fish? It's a very dead fish is simple, right? Mm-hmm. And then you establish, well, certain things I still can do, so I don't need a complicated system. And this gives me understanding what is actually the role of uh, passive dynamics mm-hmm. in a biological system. Right. Okay, now I put actuation in and ask, what can I do if I have an actuator? And I establish what is this relevant for? And so on and so on. And by just, you know, step-by-step uh, step complicating my system and controlling all the parameters, taking one or the other off, mm-hmm. I can make uh, generalizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, but in some sense, I could, I could also argue that, that what you're proposing is, is, is maybe also the opposite of KISS, right? Because if you look at the outcome of this, you're saying, look, if one of us sends fish swimming we have to actually now look at a much larger picture because suddenly we have to include the morphology, we have to think about uh, the actuation, the sensing, or the sensing might be partially removed but not completely. Mm-hmm. But, well, in a more traditional view, I could say, well, I have a bit more compartmentalized view on how a certain function is realized and I have clear defined modules, they're well described with clear interfaces between them so I can understand what I'm doing while you are turning all that upside down now because saying well actually if the body itself can already swim and the actuation is actually modulating these properties of the body and then the brain must be sort of modulating again these properties of the actuation and and, and the motor plant and so on so so how is it actually simple it also can be a complexification what you're describing here is a very fine decent respectable engineering method Mm-hmm. You take some modules that exist already and you build a new equipment. That's fine with that. What I try to do is to create new models. Mm-hmm. If in engineering, you don't have a module for an embodiment. So I'm not building a fish. I'm creating a method for building a fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the point then is 
you will have no more boxes if you want in that method, right? Because in some sense I invent now, new boxes. Yeah, but what's your box then? Is do you have a box morphology and yeah, a box? Yeah, I think you still, I do you have. Still a, do that? Yeah, I think okay. I have a box morphology, mm -hmm. and even within this box, I know already how to. I uh, if you tell me that my body has to be with a certain viscoelasticity, I also have, even, well, I'm going to have <laughs> engineering measures how you fabricate materials like this. Okay. But then between the boxes, the interface between the boxes now also become constraints, right? It's not only control signals or sensory signals that are exchanged between these systems. Now these are also constraints. Because you say, look, for instance, my body has a certain stiffness. Oh, yeah, but this everybody has a certain stiffness. It's always been a constraint. No, but I mean, this is not anymore an explicit control signal you exchange. Right? It becomes more a constraint on the control signals you might receive. So. Yeah. Yeah, so but I'm not very worried uh, of that because every system has constraints. Mm -hmm. uh, every physical system has boundary conditions mm -hmm. and constraints. So you just have to establish them and, and build your control on top of that. Okay, so, so it, you you're right, it can be complicated, especially when it comes to viscoelasticity. You know, people talk about soft robotics, but they talk about elastic robots. Mm -hmm. They don't talk about viscoelastic robots. That's right. Mm -hmm. Why they don't talk about viscoelastic robots? Because it's viscoelastic viscoelasticity is a real pain mm -hmm. for both a physicist and an engineer right. to describe, to analyze, and we're not even talking here about control mm -hmm. because I don't know any viscoelastic robots that people control. Right. But now, so if we go from your biomimetics to, um, to let's say, your, this KISS methodology you're proposing, do you see this as, let's say, a real paradigm shift in engineering or, or this was an elaboration of the standard uh, practice well um, i am ambitious enough to say it's a paradigm shift of course but uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but on the other hand i know people have tried it in different fields quite a lot just to if, if you take a clever biomimetic approach this mm. is exactly the questions what you're asking Mm -hmm. what features are relevant so mm -hmm. they should copy. So people have done it, maybe not so consciously, but there are many fine examples probably mm -hmm. around already where people in one way or other using the same approach. Right, So you're, but you are implying there's also a not so clever biomimetic approach. Oh, yeah, we, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> straightforward. <laughs> okay, so now tell me, uh, how long, what's your prediction with respect to the viability of this approach. So when will we see the first artificial robot fish uh, swim around the world, let's say, autonomously? Hmm. You know, swim around the world autonomously. Actually, it doesn't depend exactly. <laughs> I'm bleeding. <laughs> doesn't doesn't depend on the technology I am uh, uh -huh. developing. It depends on the technology of uh, power sources. Mm -hmm. So, um, but we imagine we have it yeah. solved. So, so, so we suppose we have a power source. Suppose we have a plankton-driven robot fish. Suppose we have a power source that lasts forever. Yeah, so it's yeah, actually no a very interesting test to do, and it's a great idea actually to mm. have a grand challenge of a robotic fish swimming exactly. around the world, overseas or somewhere. Exactly. Actually, it's actually a great thing to do. Okay. I have to say is that our fish uh, breaks down about every second day or so when we test it. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, we're very far from it at the sure. moment. No, but, but, so, but, but what are you expecting? So, so it's interesting, right? The power is still the biggest problem. That's also why robots mm. won't conquer the world anytime soon, right? But <laughs> when, 
what's your expectation with respect to just the, the, the control of the swimming, for instance? So, so when do you think we can really have mature systems that will not propel themselves anymore with propellers as we know them, but really with mm-hmm. fish-like bodies that are really Maybe swimming. I'm overconfident now do. here, but I think my beautiful fish would be definitely able to swim overseas mm-hmm. unless it gets eaten or something. Okay. Uh, if I had a fine uh, manufacturing technology behind it, because what it really comes to is the next step in biomimetics. Mm-hmm. First, you do your engineering, you develop new engineering approaches. Mm-hmm. Then you apply these engin- engineering approaches, but then it comes to manufacturing, right? And yeah. manufacturing is a very... Um, important part of underwater robotics. Mm-hmm. So the biggest problem in underwater robotics <laughs> is water. <laughs> sure. Mm-hmm. And the biggest problem is how to get how to keep water out of the robot. Mm-hmm. And what we what we can demonstrate is with commercial underwater vehicles, where they manage to do it rather well. So I would say that if I had good manufacturing technology, my uh, fish and um, and a power source that lasts forever. Mm-hmm. My fish would definitely be able to <laughs> swim overseas. Now mm. the problem is <laughs> another problem is how long does it take? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and another problem is where does it end up? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like a letter in a bottle, no? Exactly. <laughs> it's the expensive bottle. Right. But now, so to finish up, two last questions. So, Maria. You're you're in this business for for quite some time. You build up this uh, your, your your biorobotics lab in in Estonia. Um, so, uh, what would be the the one law of of Maria that you would like us to adhere to in our biomimetic exploration of the universe? Maria's law. What is it? Oh, now you're going to ask something about like does God exist or something? This is so general a question. I don't have a single law, so I I want to be very careful with it. All my gifts approach for the for the fish uh, works fine. I'm very happy with that. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to make grand claims. Something like this is generalizable to everything. Mm-hmm. Take this method and apply to insects mm-hmm. or apply them to other animals because then it comes. I think what happens then it, it becomes very general, mm-hmm. and a very very general law is uh, ap- uh, is applicable to a- everything, but it lacks details. Mm-hmm. So it's like. I can give you a law, mm-hmm. but this law is like, you know, I can also give you a law for playing piano. You know, the law for playing piano mm-hmm. is that you have to press the right key with the right finger yeah, at the right not, time. And you always can play all pianos like that, but mm-hmm. it doesn't uh, it doesn't help you really to play mm-hmm. anything, right? So what I'm, I'm afraid mm-hmm. of is to giving a, a similar, very general mm-hmm. suggestion like, you know, be happy. <laughs> no, but look, the Don't point worry, is, be happy or something yes, like no, this. But you're not, since you're not a professional piano player, I can challenge you on this. So your KISS methodology could be an example of a principle or a law you would propose. Or what you tell me now, you're saying, look, all paradigms have limitations. This would be another potential law. So in that sense, it's not you have no laws, right? So mm-hmm. but we just have to agree on which one is the one today, mm-hmm. right? So what would be the one today? I'm still afraid of speaking trivialities. Mm-hmm. If I say that, yes, a law you have to do in biomimetics is keep it simple, stupid. Mm-hmm. It's just 
it's a little bit of a triviality. Mm-hmm. But maybe one thing, if, I, if I'm if i now thinking that I'm a biomedical engineer and I want to have my problem, which is something different, maybe it's insect flight or something. So maybe really what I would do is, is like the physicist approach with taking there that we have a phenomenon and then we make a controlled experiment. Mm-hmm. We try to knock out some phenomena and investigate what is the impact to the other, to the performance of the system. And to apply this law to in, in, within our box of biomimetics. But of course, it's very hard to predict how scalable it is. Mm-hmm. Because the phenomena dependent on each other, and your measurements are imprecise. You're maybe uh, not careful with some design parameters and so on. But also, on the other hand, still physicists have the same problem, right? Experimental physicists. Mm-hmm. So they don't know how the parameters depend on each other, and they're still and doing it, and they're doing it fine. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So I think this experimental methodology, if you want to have a key message, like mm-hmm. what's the meaning of life or something, <laughs> mm-hmm. then it would be to have a controlled experiment like this to establish a relative importance of the phenomena uh, to your system mm-hmm. regarding your fitness function that you're mm-hmm. aiming to. Okay, so... Keep on experimenting. Yeah, it, um, yeah, it turned out to be awfully trivial. <laughs> now we got a law. And then last one is a prediction. So if I go visit you five years from now, and I'm going to say, look, you know, five years back, you made this one prediction. Today, I'm, I'm checking with you whether it came true. What is one prediction you would be willing to make today you're, you're most enthusiastic about, you feel most committed to right now? Within biomimetics, you mean? Sure, within the envelope of our current discussion i i think there are some um, some very if you look at technology there are some very general trends that are going on one thing is that technology is uh, robotic technology if we talk about biometric robots it's robots are moving closer to humans some are moving from industry to service which means that they have to be safer and one way to make them safer is to make them soft. That's just one solution to making them safer. There are others, of course, learning methods and everything. But one may, one one thing you can do is to make robots soft. And uh, of course, there are also trends of miniaturization uh, happening at the same time. And uh, I'd say it it's maybe going to towards simplification in one. In, in some sense that that in traditional robotics where uh, so very much emphasis have been on a control, fine, beautiful control of very complicated systems. I think the prediction is really that people are going to explore rather how to keep the control minimal, mm-hmm. to make robots that are safe mm-hmm. and robust, mm-hmm. uh, independent on how whether your control laws are exactly correct or not. Will we have those in five years? Is that what you're saying? Five years, will we have more safe and robust robots? We can I think we definitely have more safe and robust robots. Mm-hmm. And I think also they're going to be compliant. Mm-hmm. Because what you you can see it's an increasing trend. More and more research papers are written on compliant robots. So now more restricted to compliant robot arms for very obvious mm-hmm. reasons. But I think it's also moving to other uh, fields of the research. So I think the next step then with compliant robots, we have a good theory for making robots with a changing elasticity, changing mm-hmm. stiffness. And we understand also the theoretical background of it quite well. 
Okay. But one thing that we have trouble understanding is viscoelasticity. Mm-hmm. Well, most of the bodies are viscoelastic, viscoelastic, elastic. elastic, and they are said for a particular reasons. It is that if you have viscoelastic body, you dissipate energy. Mm-hmm. When you dissipate energy, you filter out disturbances. Mm-hmm. And filtering out disturbances is an important thing. Right. So I think where it is going in five years, you're going also to see research on this sort of uh, embodied signal processing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. All right, I come back to you and check. Uh, well, yeah, it's a self-fulfilling prediction because I'm going to research on it anyway. <laughs> so you come back <laughs> in five years, I fulfilled my prediction. <laughs> okay, Marcia Kruzma, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomedics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.